Welcome to Core Conversations, a podcast dedicated to uncovering powerful and practical lessons in holistic fitness and wellness to help you in your pursuit of feeling, moving and living better. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Core Conversations by Core Collective. I'm Kim and I am very excited today to host this episode with some of the best fitness and wellness professionals we have working here. In today's episode, we will be discussing the topic of mental health among very busy professionals. Now, if you have ever experienced burnout before, you'll know that it can drain all the love, passion and enthusiasm you have for your job and even for your life in general. It's a pleasure to be joined today by a specialist in clinical neuroplasticity and not one, but two clinical psychologists to talk about the most common mental health issues seen amongst professionals. They will also share how we can also identify early signs of burnout and strategies to prevent it. We will be asking them to answer some of the questions that you have submitted on Instagram at the very end of the podcast, as well as sharing instructions on how you can take part in our exclusive giveaway. So stay tuned to the very end. Now, before I introduce our guest, I would like to introduce my co-host for this episode. She's none other than my good friend and business development manager in Core Collective, Stacey. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Hello, thank you, Kim, for the very warm introduction. So I'm business development manager and I work alongside uh, Kim Active. And my role here is to grow the business by attracting new residents to join our community. A little bit about me. I'm a bit of a fitness junkie. It's my ultimate form of therapy. I also teach Pilates and I'm trying really hard to learn Chinese right now, but it's a little bit difficult. <laughs> Quite very excited to be here. Do we speak in Chinese? In this podcast for you, Stace. Oh, go ahead. And Stace, I understand that you enjoy exploring different parts of Singapore, right? Like the nature yeah, parts. So like yeah, I like to get off the beaten path, which is quite difficult in Singapore. So I often get stopped. There's been a few occasions recently where a few people have said, I'm really sorry, but you can't go down there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining the show. Now, I would like to introduce our three guests in today's show. So first up, we have Dr. Kim Fu. He is a clinical neuroplasticity specialist. He works for IFN Singapore. There is a world-leading neuroplasticity center. In his free time, he likes to listen to podcasts. So I'm really glad that he's on today's show. I hope that he listens to all our episodes. He loves to read as well as rollerblading. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tim. Hi, hi. Thanks for inviting. Can you share a little bit about what you do at IFN? What we do at IFN, it's uh, sometimes quite difficult to explain. We essentially do brain rehabilitation, right? So uh, all the way from people with issues, okay, all the way to people with performance goals as well. Essentially, we mold the brain. Nice. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll dive deep into a little bit more about what you do. Awesome. The second guest in our show today is Sri. She is a clinical psychologist, founder and director of Synaptica. I also understand that in her free time, she's actually very active. She loves to run ultra long distances for long endurance races and loves to relax with her family. That includes a very intelligent and clingy pet parrot. 
tell us a little bit more? Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for inviting me on this guest. I'm really excited to have this conversation and uh, share, you know, my ideas and thoughts from my clinical um, experience on burnout, but also to hear from all of you people here as well. Ultra long distances, yeah, I never really thought of myself as a runner, but if I look back, I've always ran in some mm. form or the other from high school athletics and all the way to recreational running. And then sometime, maybe about 10 years ago, I decided to uh, push myself a little bit further and said, why don't I do longer distances? So instead of doing your typical 5Ks and 10Ks, I went for wow. a 250K race in a desert which is supported as well. That was a very interesting experience and firmly made ultra long running a big part of my life. It's a big part of my life in the sense that it helps me not just to cope and to relax, but it does mm -hmm. allow me to really engage with all parts of my life because I do a lot of thinking when I'm running. Mm. Tell us a little yeah. bit more about Synaptica. Synaptica is my private practice in psychology mm -hmm. and we've now got a big team of psychologists working alongside of me and what we do is basically conduct psychological assessments and provide psychotherapy for individuals in uh, of different ages and dealing with different mental health conditions and issues so we work with individuals we work with couples families and we use evidence-based approaches with mm -hmm. a very strong commitment to ethical practice and service excellence. A bit more in terms of the, the conditions would be starting with what is most commonly seen in the mental health areas, such as depression, stress, anxiety, to more chronic and more debilitating conditions as well, like eating disorders, ADHD, personality disorders, such as borderline personality disorder or OCD or even psychosis. Very so I have a specialization in neuropsychology. Mm -hmm. So that's my background as well. And I do develop behavior support programs for challenging behaviors in children with ADHD as part of that. Thanks for sharing, Sri. I think we'll find out a little bit more as we dive deep later. Thank you. Last but not least, we have Emery in today's show. She is also a clinical psychologist and founder of Illuminate Psychology Practice. In her free time, she likes to go to the gym and for yoga classes. And just like Stacey, she enjoys also exploring Definitely. new spaces. So maybe Emery <laughs> and Stacey, you guys can go on a walk together in future. Yeah. And something very interesting that she shared over here is that in her free time, she enjoys catching up with friends and just having good quality yeah, conversations. Sure. I think that's something that all of us crave, yeah, especially, yeah. Thank you, Kim. Really happy to Welcome be to the show. Would here you like to share and sharing yourself? some of my ideas and perspectives. Illuminate Psych Practice is like my baby. I actually was uh, working in a hospital prior to coming out to set up my own practice. And I think with this practice, my, mm. my hope is that we could really provide um, quality care and really practicing at the top of our license in terms of delivering psychotherapy to people who need some help. Yeah. And the kind of clientele I see will be probably quite similar to, to Shri's as well. I work a lot with young adults, teens, adults mm -hmm. on a variety of um, different conditions. And I see a lot of people struggling with eating disorders, anxiety, depression, some trauma as well, and attachment difficulties. So this would be the bulk of people I, I work with. Of late, we see, we're seeing a lot more of um, burnout as well. 
as people struggle to cope with some of these changes mm. that's happening all around. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Thank you. Thanks for giving us a glimpse into what you do. The topic that is mental health for busy professionals, managing burnout, prioritizing self-care, drawing healthy professional and personal boundaries and more. Now, we all know that life is a marathon and not a sprint, definitely not a sprint. And this applies to our work life as well. I think a lot of our listeners out there, including myself, find ourselves in this position where we are very highly passionate about our work. We take on a lot of personal responsibility to be very successful at work and sometimes at the expense of our mental well-being. So I'll start off by asking the first question. In your professional experience, what are the most common mental health issues faced by busy professionals today? Maybe let's start with Emery. So I think I mentioned this earlier as well. I think with mental health issues, we're seeing a lot of coping with stress in general and as well as you know, anxiety disorders and mood disorders. Yeah, so I think it's, it's becoming a lot more prevalent these days. Sure, I'm not sure if you would, you would agree with that. Absolutely, especially with a lot of high-functioning, successful and high-achieving clients, you know, who are also like really achieving like peak performance in their chosen professions. Everyone is pushing themselves like so hard, driving themselves so hard to be tough and to go after their goals. And so stress and anxiety, regardless of whether people are in the start of career, mid-career or more advanced kind of phase of their careers, it's stress and big issues that everyone seems to be facing. Yes. So the other thing that I often hear a lot in my clinical practice is a lot about the self-diagnosed imposter syndrome, where a lot of people are talking about having a very deep disconnect, you know, with their own sense of self and their identity. So the imposter syndrome is something that a lot of clients mentioned, just not feeling like they're good enough, feeling like if somehow they're going to trip themselves up and do something that's not good or make mistakes at work and so on. So those are those, that's part of the anxiety that comes from putting huge pressures on themselves. Another issue that I face is what I like to think of as an energy crisis almost, that professionals are feeling exhausted and drained of all energy, both mental and physical, throughout the day. But come nighttime, they're too tense, too nervous, and too wide awake well into the night, and then struggling to wake up in the morning. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more sleep difficulties that uh, we're seeing, and the sense of struggling with your inner critics, being really perfectionistic, and that's all coming to the forefront these days. Yeah. Dr. Tim? In an IFN, we see a lot of mental health uh, issues as well, but we don't treat them directly. Right? So we're not uh, clinical psychologists, uh, we're not psychiatrists, we help to optimize the brain. But what I've, I've observed is, especially with the kids with autism, uh, ADHD, I see the people that they come in with very stressed out. So many things to juggle and some of them we've been seeing them since even before the pandemic started and you can see the fatigue on their faces all right, when they come in. So I don't know if what category this falls under. Probably a mix of depression and anxiety but because we don't 
diagnosed. Right? I would stay away from saying that they have yeah. that, but they're definitely struggling with coping. So definitely calls into question the need to build resilience uh, in all of us. Now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. now, you guys mentioned busy professionals facing mood disorders, stress, anxiety, sleep difficulties, and even depression. What do you guys think is the root causes of these conditions? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, tough question to answer a bunch of uh, psychologists, really, because I guess like we usually answer, we'd probably say that if you take any mood disorder, the, the, the underlying causes and the factors that contribute to it are many. And we tend to look at things from a biopsychosocial perspective, which means we look at the biological side, we look at the psychological side, we also look at the social side. Right. So the biological side, we would be looking at your health and your genes, what's going on medically in your body, basically. The psychological side, obviously, we will be looking at things like your thinking, um, your cognitive styles, irrational thinking and beliefs and your ability to regulate your emotions that sort of thing. And the social side of it would be more in terms of your relationships, your interactions with other people and with the environment. So it's hard to pinpoint any one, but it's usually like a confluence of, you know, factors in all three that come together in the right way at Mm. the right time. And how do you guys help your clients overcome these issues? I think clinical psychologists, because they, they deal uh, with the actual symptoms and you guys probably have, you know, gold standards, protocols, a bunch of tools that you use. I think the thing that we do is slightly novel. So it's not what people uh, usually think of right away when they're trying to deal with things like you know, anxiety and mental health issues. At IFN, we work on optimizing brain function. So a lot of times the people who come to us, they have tried the more traditional forms of therapy and as fellow health uh, practitioners, right, sometimes there's always this population, the outliers that are just very treatment resistant. And no matter what you do, right, it just seems that they're not getting better. So with this group of people, when they come in, the first thing that we do is a brain scan. That's called an EEG. So it's an electroencephalogram. It's a, a scan of, of how the activation of your brain, right, how does it look like? And based on that, our founder in Perth, his name is Dr. Randy Beck, he looks at it and he analyzes and, and breaks down the areas of the brain that needs to be facilitated or primed, okay? And areas of the brain that maybe need to be inhibited. Because a lot of times the symptom, the cause of the symptom or the symptom generator may not be the area that is, may not be the root cause, okay? For example, it could be an, uh, a separate area of the brain that is you know, causing, affecting this particular area of the brain that is causing the symptoms. So if we only look at uh, the symptoms without addressing the underlying issues, that could the thing can be uh, chronic recurrent. It's a little bit like we're talking about, uh, Sri, talking about running uh, barefoot, a marathon, and all this information from our environment, it feeds our brain. So if we are lacking that kind of input, we may not be able to you know, perform when our brain, when we call upon our brain to do something. Right. So what we do is we try to balance activations in those areas and also just ensuring that there is good connectivity between you know, left, right, front, back right, of, of, of the brain. All right. Then other therapies, so we, we refer out a lot. So then other therapies can be built onto that because we don't, again, right, we don't 
look at or we don't address directly the symptoms, right? So when people get better, I'm sure most holistic health practitioners will see that when, for example, your mood gets better, not your sleep gets better, right? Yeah. The skin quality on your face gets better, right? A lot of other things get better. Your digestion gets better. It will be impact uh, a very wide um, a range of symptoms. Anyway, so that's uh, in a nutshell kind of uh, what we do, how we do it probably, probably later. I really like what you were talking about, Tim, in terms of what you're doing with your approaches in terms of neurologically and targeting the brain activity. I guess the way a psychologist is, let's say we don't have direct um, mm. physical access to the brain, but we have some very powerful other ways of accessing the brain function, which is through dialogue, interactions and behavior. The objective is pretty much the same, which is really what we want to do is for people in their first line fight or flight response and they're stressed and they're anxious and they're in the state of hyper arousal with like very like overcompensatory sort of perfectionism and overworking or turning to very poor kind of choices say alcohol or poor dietary choices or so on we're doing the same thing we're trying to soothe and calm that overactivated sympathetic nervous system and retrain the brain just that our access you know in psychotherapy mm. is a little bit different right so using approaches such as say cognitive behavior therapy and behavior modification which is based on learning principles all within of course the framework of the therapeutic relationship what we try to do is to get busy professionals for instance to be more mindful of internal mental states without those mental states then triggering them to engage in unhelpful behaviors and then to use their competencies and their self-awareness to be able to take charge of the stress and the end result is that they also end up adding to their skill repertoire so they, they learn different say competencies and also grow their own sense of identity i fully agree like for us as well and i'm sure amory will agree with this it's very difficult to put it in words in terms yeah. of what actually happens in a session but it looks like the goals are very similar yeah what we you mm -hmm. know what we're working on it's like we're we're all touching the elephant, right? A little yep. part of it's the same elephant. Yep. We just need to, you know, uh, collaborate and say, "Oh, what do you feel?" This is what I feel. Yeah, I, I was having this conversation with. It's great that we have two clinical psychologists. Yeah, so I was having this conversation with with a friend, and we were talking about ADHD, for example, mm -hmm. and how it can be quite destructive for the relationships in our lives, and also, well sabotages our future despite how how productive we are where we are ADHD for example so I, I was thinking about how sometimes these these conditions have actually served us and to the point where it, uh, we are today right so for example if you did not have that ADHD yeah. you would not have achieved uh, this much and it becomes a part of your identity so almost I'm not sure if this is really true or not is there a part of ourself that feel that, okay, I don't really want this ADHD to go away with, if we are using ADHD as an example. I don't really want this to go away because if it goes away, uh, a part of my identity goes away, right? Do people identify so much with it that they don't want to let it go, you know? Or what do you guys think? I just wanted to say too, that was such a insightful reflection. Yeah, and definitely, I think we see that a lot in obesity professionals that it's not okay to be a little bit more calm because they think that anxiety actually has a function and it's it's been serving them well. So why give that up? And if it means having 
experiencing uh, burnout, it's worth it because all this time it's been giving them results. So it's very scary for them to let go of something that has been serving them, even though they know that long term, it comes at a cost. Yeah, definitely people might be holding on to some of these not helpful sort of ways of approaching things because they're so used to it and letting go actually can be very scary for them. I don't think in your, you guys experience, you have ever helped someone with, with anxiety, but you have over helped them to off. They are now so chill that they are, you know, not very productive members of society. Never, right? (laughs) It doesn't happen that way. No, this is such a great conversation about, and it really makes us like stop and think about what we're doing mm. when we're working with people, right? Are we, are we really, are we there to fix things? And if we just go in with blinders on and we just focused on, you know, exactly what the person is saying and just do that little bit without considering all of the yeah. other pieces in their life. Mm. One of the big things that we see is not only are people resistant to giving up parts of their identity or parts that actually the the function in their dysfunction, right? Like the bits that actually serve them. But then you find that there's also resistance from people around them. So sometimes they change and they improve or get rid of some of their symptoms. The people around them don't know how to interact with them. So there is sometimes resistance in that way as well. And it is important for us as in our practice, when we're working with our clients, to be able to actually take a step back and look at all of those pieces when we um, provide interventions and we you know, do treatments. So you just don't go and fix something because that would be a very sort of traditional medical model. And mm. I guess we're moving away from that, which is saying, like, okay, so this is, this is the kind of symptom and this is the disease and I just go in and I fix that and it doesn't matter that the rest of their life falls apart (sighs) yeah yeah so it has to be collaborative we have to go at the client's pace and so you're quite right in in sort of pointing out that people around them might not be ready for the changes because I've seen it so much uh, in clients I work with whose bosses are not so much ready for them to step back on the productivity which is the same reason why they were burned out to begin with Yeah. So I think it's a very systemic kind of perspective we have to take when we approach some of these changes for them to implement. So the rise and the use of social media, how much impact do you think this is having on stress and anxiety levels in all ages, not just the really young people, but of all ages? It's having an impact for sure, <clears throat> whether it's positive or not, we don't know yet in the long run. But right now, it doesn't seem to be going the, uh, in the right direction because it messes with this, with our present time consciousness. It doesn't allow us to be mindful. It gives us a very easy excuse to not have to deal with what we need to deal with right now. Or we don't have to look at our lives because we can just distract ourselves with other people's highlight reels. And the things that they put out there on social media and the way it's designed, is designed exactly for that to figure out what you want and slowly give it to you so that you'll be more drawn in. And you'll be, once you're drawn in, they'll give you something else that you're also drawn in. And, and then they'll say, because you like this, you may like this also. So all of a sudden you have, you have algorithms and you have you know, other people telling you what you want rather than you figuring it out for yourself. And it all feels very real because it's everywhere right now. It's very consistent right now. It's going to be very hard for people to find their identity. If social media is not a tool, but it becomes a master of, of them. Yeah, but definitely in terms of specifically attention span, it's hurting humanity's attention span. 
Okay, so that's the effect of social media, I think. Yeah, social media. I think Stacy just opened a can of worms over there. We could do an entire season of conversations around that. But I guess there's so many things about the social media you know, and and devices and technology that have you know impacts that we never imagined when we invented them and when we brought them out. So whether it's the screen or whether it is the fact that the interactions are virtual or whether it is how much of your personal information is out there, so many aspects that you can look into that has negative impacts. But I'm going to I'm going to jump in here and provide a slightly controversial take on this which is that like it or not, devices and technology are here to stay and if we keep demonizing technology we're just going to stop progress and if our forefathers did that we, we we wouldn't have we wouldn't have cars now we wouldn't have airplanes now so it's a battle that we can't fight and hope to win on the other hand there's there's also sensible ways of fighting it particularly you know from say the psychological mental health kind of angle and one of the interesting things is that chile is the um, only nation that very recently passed a bill protecting neuro right which which is really very much something that i think chile is leading the world in that so they've um, actually set out a bill that protects the right to personal identity free will mental privacy and uh, equitable access to technologies and so on so that is the way to go forward because we're very soon heading in the direction of being able to read people's minds with technology and a lot of the issues that we're talking about here they will be very practical issues that we will have to actually live through so that was something that i found very exciting to hear that chile had actually done that and it is our responsibility as professionals as well to guide our clients in how do they actually take charge of the technology around them and make it work for them rather than becoming a slave to it and rather than allowing it to impact in whatever way it does it's it's not all bad also because very likely how they stumbled onto this podcast is through social media there's good things and good resources out there as well yeah we don't want people to stop listening to the podcasts do we <laughs> yeah i i agree that social media is a tool isn't it and we can use it to benefit us or if we're not careful it can actually take over our lives. Yeah, I think the message we often get is that there's so much comparison when people go onto social media and it's not really healthy. That's probably just one piece of the, the whole picture because on the other side you have actually people who benefited from social support from people um online they might have not met but you know feel a sense of community with and that has helped them buffer a lot of their current stressors. <laughs> interesting views thank you for sharing so i guess the key thing is making sure that you manage it and it doesn't manage you yeah you guys have given me a quite an expanded view expanded social media and actually of burnout as well so as i was reflecting on the questions that i first drafted so the questions that i asked you guys just now is how do you help your clients overcome mental health issues and after hearing all your responses i had a new perspective to this question because i used to think that if i am facing a mental health issue i see a psychologist i see a clinical neuroplasticity specialist and i want to get that solved i used to think of it that way but i realized after hearing all your sharing that it is not managing a mental health condition or burnout which we will come to later it's not really like just going to to, to get treatment and then after i get treated then i'm totally fine it involves a community it involves a supportive you know community at work we talked about 
how we can, you know, get our bosses on board as well to help employees cope with their mental health. It involves family. The word that came up to me just now as you guys were sharing is that actually your roles, you guys are really empowering people to make better choices, to get on that path of making better choices, having, you know, better habits, thinking habits to then like steer away from burnout destination. Yeah, so that's like my expanded perspective. So let's talk a little bit more about burnout. Let's backtrack a bit. What are some of the early signs and symptoms and how can we prevent them? Can I, can I just jump in here, Kim, and add to what you were saying about the view of burnout is that really the nail on the head when you said it's not just about fixing someone because burnout is, while it's a personal problem, it is an occupational phenomenon, right? So you will not have burnout if there was no work. So if I didn't have to come to work, I'm not going to burn out. I may have other problems. So what we don't want to do is to overpromise or have a tunnel focus when we say that you know, if an individual works at their mental health, they understand themselves better, they change their you know, negative thinking, they can regulate their emotions better, they have better self-care and so on. Everything is mm. going to be you know, magically fixed and disappear because burnout has both individual and organizational components to it. So if you're going to do everything you can to help a person become better and improve their own personal health and well-being, become more aware and resilient, and then you just plug them back into the same toxic environments that bred the burnout in the first place, I don't think you're doing or you're going to be doing very much to help them. One, one of the things that I've heard uh, is the canary in the coal mine kind of analogy for burnout right like in the olden days when they were mining in the coal mines they would send a canary in to test for whether there were toxic fumes and if the canary flew back to its owner then it was the mine was safe for the miners to go in and burnout is a little bit like that for an organization so if you have employees that are burning out they are effectively your canaries and they're telling you that there's, there's a lot of toxicity going on in the organization that needs to be handled differently mm. What are some of the early signs and symptoms? Emery? A sense of dread. I speak from personal past experiences. Um, cynicism, pessimism, maybe irritability, this feeling like you can't quite disconnect from work. So I think a lot of people who struggle with burnout would talk about how even at night when they're supposed to be unwinding, they're still quite connected in their minds, even though they're shut off, this is thinking and ruminating about work or having dreams about what their boss might say or missing deadlines. Yeah, things like that. I, I don't know if there's an official agnostic criteria for burnout, but going based on you know, the word itself, it's just a feeling of you don't want to do this and or anything anymore. Uh, okay. You just, it's a very profound sense of apathy <laughs> and become a person who uh, really doesn't take ownership or is not very responsible anymore. And I think this kind of thing creeps up on you. The canaries and this coma is us. It's very hard to, very hard to identify because they faint or they die very slowly or they take a long time to come back. And by the time you realize it, it usually is at the point where you find that you have changed from what you recall yourself to be. Last time, even if you think back mm. in, in more in your more inspired days. Effectively, that's the canary dying in, in a psychological sense. 
Yeah, I guess whether a person goes to get help would depend on social circle, right? What kind of support do they already have? Because sometimes it's not always bad. Really what, what you said, Sri, about you have burnout because you have a job. So immediately, boom, a hit of gratitude there already. It's not necessarily bad. It could be just normal work stress. But I guess if you continue to build your resilience to it, you, know, you understand yourself better, uh, you yeah. be able to handle more and more of this size. Can I jump in and disagree though, Tim? Because I guess that's also a bit of the point that we were making. It's not about making people tougher and to do more and more because that's not going to benefit either the individual or the organization in the long run. Because like you said, there is no diagnostic criteria for burnout because it's not an official diagnosis. So even though it is a personal problem, it is not a mental health condition. Right. And burnout is much more than just says job stress or exhaustion. So it's got two additional components to it. It's in addition to the exhaustion that you feel you also have, like Amory said, a very cynical, negative attitude towards the work. It just feels meaningless and, you know, pointless and you have no motivation to do work. You're not feeling enthusiastic about it, feeling that everything requires a lot of mental effort. So there's a lot of cynical attitude towards work. And the second thing is similar negative attitude towards yourself. So just not feeling good enough, not feeling you're really contributing. So it's got both of those additional components to it as well. So you were talking about the early signs of burnout, right? So the job stress, I think, and the exhaustion are, by the time that comes, it probably burnout is underway. And we would want to look out for physical signs like fatigue, not being able to sleep well, difficulty falling asleep or difficulty waking up in the mornings or the other side, waking up too early and not being able to go back to sleep, eating either more or less, behavioral signs, like drinking more alcohol and so on. So if you almost put it into, say, different categories, physical signs, emotional signs, and say cognitive or thinking signs, you could see a little bit more about all the signs, different signs of burnout. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about safeguards, right? So what are some things that we can do to prevent us from getting to that point? In short, self-care and being quite self-aware, I would say. Yeah, the thing is, I, I see burnout as sometimes a reflection also of the organizations because a lot of times we have really resilient individuals. They're tough and they're very high functioning. But even so, it doesn't make them immune to, to burnout, especially if they're in an organization or like a, or a culture that really values output and performance, right? It is very hard for them to unwind. And this idea of practicing self-care is, is really important because for these individuals, this idea of self-care sometimes is being synonymous with being weak, yeah, lazy, unmotivated. There is such a bad rep associated with self-care, which essentially is the antidote to burnout. And being self-aware as well. So really checking in with themselves to, to ask themselves how they're going, you know, if they're feeling okay. Because sometimes in the midst of trying to chase deadlines, a lot of times these individuals forget to really just check in with themselves and realizing that they're not going okay. And being quite self-aware will be helpful to stamp out a burnout before it actually happens. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Burnout comes from the mental and the physical cost of doing work, right? So the only way that you can contain it and prevent burnout is to actually make sure that you have a life outside of work. 
and to contain the work that you're that you're doing to have perspective it will also allow you to step back and evaluate what you're doing the self-awareness there, there needs to be there needs to be space to be aware as well and if work is not giving you that space to be aware no matter how resilient you are how you know how clever you are or how strong you are it's going to get you Tim, can I ask, how do you go about drawing boundaries? We pick one if it's personal or professional. Probably personal is the hardest one. How do you approach that? Well, I guess the, the discussion would shift to boundaries at the moment. Yeah, so if, if you have a toxic environment, for example, then I think these boundaries would be very important. If there's no toxic environment, then, you know, there's no problem. But if you have this, then I think it's always good to know how to do it because not just professionally and at work, but in socially lives with a family, especially with being able to do boundaries, being able to have boundaries is uh, very useful, right? So I think when you have them, it's a lot harder. If you talk about safeguards, it's a lot harder to have burnout because you, you hit the bumper, right? You, you, you draw the boundaries and then you need to know how to draw the, the right boundaries and, and you don't want to build walls, but just have boundaries. So there's uh, a, a slight difference. And when you can see it and other parties can see it. It is a much better safeguard because you know that, you know, you have automatically, you have some time for yourself ready to self-reflect. And then you have some time also to hopefully address and talk about this with the other stakeholders that you have. Yeah. For me, this is, I'm just speaking personally, how, you know, what goes through my mind. In order to draw boundaries, you have to first be very clear about your values. Because if you're not clear about your own values and your purpose, then it's going to be very difficult to draw boundaries because then you'll be just adapting or molding yourself into uh, another person's values. For me, I spend time thinking about what my values are and reminding myself very often sometimes. So like personally, uh, I value growth, right? Uh, I value growth and, and freedom. If you consider those two things when you approach work, for example, when people start to encroach on your freedom, you be motivated, first of all, to speak against it because you are already, you're clear of your own values. And then how to do it, it will vary with every situation, every relationship. But I know you've got to be firm, respectful, and also if you're blessed enough, all right, to be able to, okay, walk away, that would be good also. Sometimes uh, you've got to be prepared to walk away also because if you assess your own values, you might come to the conclusion that, oh, this is not worth it or this is actually not in line with where I want to go. And, oh, then actually this decision is a lot easier to make. Okay, so, okay, I'm willing to walk away. Yeah, or it could be the other way where there are things that, that align with me and it is worth sticking through this. I'm not sure if that answers your question about how you draw boundaries, but uh, I think the first step before boundary drawing is understanding and how you understand your values will be having conversations like this. As I talk, I'm, I'm also like, oh, okay, yeah. So I realized that my values are this. And, and so you, you learn to learn more about yourself as you talk with other people. This is where therapy comes in a lot of articulating um, your thoughts and feelings with another person in a way that they can understand allows you to pick some of these things apart and to get to know yourself almost a little bit better and that of course then lays the kind of foundation for 
policies and procedures that you can processes that you can set in place that will allow you to have those boundaries so if i can give you like a like a little sort of personal example from my own practice is we don't give out our personal mobile phones to our clients and there is a reason for that because the moment that is breached and every now and then a new staff will forget or not know it and do it and when that happens then you realize that there's a like a very legitimate question or comment or communication that comes through from the client and then you feel like pressured to respond to it and you're thinking oh my god i don't know how this person is going to read it because it's a text and it's not like in a therapy session and leads to so many other problems so a simple boundary over there is that personal mobile phones are never you know numbers are never shared with clients and they know that and once clients know that they absolutely respect it so even for ourselves as as professionals we do have those kind of boundaries in place that allow us to protect your personal life from your professional life. Ooh. Yeah, I've made that mistake before. <laughs> we all have. My boundary is sometimes you got to be uh sometimes you got to be a little bit like tough and, and just for me sometimes I just ignore the messages. I I know it can be perceived as oh no, you don't care, but if you practice present time consciousness with everyone you meet, they would know or maybe it gives you the right to ignore their messages outside because when you're with them you're fully present so i don't know yeah. it took a while because sometimes you feel very guilty or you feel very yeah. <laughs> i'm sure that there are also employers not just employees but employers listening to this episode so i'm thinking do you guys also think that it's a like providing healthy boundaries for employees is also like a two way um street so for employers it's also important that they have to provide a safe environment to promote a healthy culture of um trust i think a lot of employees they feel obligated to work after hours or to reply their email almost instantly because if they don't then maybe their appraisals will be affected so in that sense it's also like a two way street employers to provide that safe environment to trust the team if when you are working trust that your team is working and on the other side then i really like what dr tim shared don't build walls but have boundaries because i guess from an employee side sometimes as much as we want to draw boundaries sometimes it can be perceived as walls when we become a little bit too calculative and we don't want to have that position when we come to work as well because we we want to have a strong sense of ownership and passion and responsibility and that value of going the extra mile for our company yeah trying to balance that out absolutely kim i would definitely say that a lot of these things are important from an organizational perspective as well you know because an organization typically is running uh, a lot of those services and should be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers and the inherent risks in that profession so some of the safeguards need to be put in by organization so for example what we do is we have certain policies for our own psychologists that they are expected to follow and a reception will staff will back them up on that so a good example would be like you know taking 10 minutes or 15 minutes break in between appointments so you don't see back to back clients mm. or if you've seen three clients or four clients back to back then you get a longer break and that break is already inbuilt into the calendars from an organizational perspective so that helps the psychologists employees to actually do it without feeling guilty yeah and those safeguards need to be put in place by an organization that is looking out for 
its employees. My sister works at, or used to work uh, at LinkedIn. And I think they, that the culture that they had was amazing when she shared with me this, the story when she sent an email out after 7pm or 6pm. The next day, her manager came to her and said, why did you send an email after 6 or 7pm? Because, and then it could, she said that it could be one of two reasons. It could be we are overloading you, so we need to relook at your workload. Mm -hmm. Or it could be a competency issue then we need to look at training. So I thought that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Like it, it's, so, it's very sustainable and it's so scalable, but it all comes down to, to individual managers. The culture is the people, right? At the end of the day. Yeah. But the systems is also important because it is a signal, right? From, from right from the top that this is important if it's inbuilt into um, the system. I, I didn't know that you had that going on, Sri. That was that's amazing <laughs> that's you. really good yeah yeah and yeah. and that's it really it goes to the point that just providing say uh, a gym for the employees or uh, having sleep pods for the employees in itself while it's fantastic it does not guarantee that they will not suffer from burnout we need to have other practices in the organization that will literally walk the talk yeah. so if you have like for instance a gym and then you say but Go to the gym, but only on your own time. <laughs> Doesn't help. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. It, it looks nice, right? It, it looks nice when you yeah, say it, but yeah, you know, yeah. reality. This brings me to the questions from fans section. So we asked our Instagram followers if they have questions for the three of you. And we have shortlisted three questions. So it brings me nicely to the next question that I have for Emery. How do I tell my boss or manager that I am feeling burnout? This is tough, isn't it? Because I think we, we mentioned earlier that a lot of people avoid such conversations because uh -huh. they think that it means they are weak or incompetent. The truth is that it takes a lot of courage to really be honest about it. And I think that the first thing to note is that it's okay to have such conversations with your boss or manager. And it doesn't mean that you're weak or something is wrong with you. It just means that you've been working so much that work has taken over your life and you just need to figure out how to manage it in a way that's sustainable and that's all there is to it. And it will be uh, helpful also to maybe set a time. Go to your manager or boss and say, maybe could we set a time for a bit of a check-in or a review? And before going into that, um, maybe role play with a trusted friend or family, talk through about what you want to say. It'll also be good to be proactive in putting in some strategies first before mm. going to the interview or, or review to, to say, look, I've tried some of these strategies. This is not really helping. And I really do need your help to figure out if there's a way I could reorganize my work mm. so that it's more sustainable. Because ultimately, it's about what's going to be helpful for the organization. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, really knowing that it's okay to have such conversations, I think that will be key. And oftentimes, bosses and managers do value such open dialogue, and they also like to see proactivity. So if you have done some of your own strategies in trying to manage that, if you're proactive in calling for this meeting, for a check-in, I think they will really appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's a very well-balanced and mature approach to this. Yeah, I speak from experience, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Emily. The next question is for Sri. 
it's on the topic of self-care, right? So I often feel guilty for taking a break to give myself self-care despite knowing it's very important. How, how do I go about changing my mindset about this? That's a really cool question because it feels like the answer is already there in it. So to the person who sent that question in, congratulations for being aware of the guilt that you're feeling. So we've been talking about self-awareness all along. So it looks like you're aware of it. You're recognizing also that there is no place for it in your life. You've already done like 75% of the hard work. The rest of it is about practicing the skill of challenging a negative belief that might be quite deep rooted, a negative belief, possibly along the lines of, I shouldn't be slacking off. I need to work harder. So to challenge this, I'm just going to give you very quickly four points. One, don't skip the vacation, even if you feel guilty. Two, ask yourself a lot of questions about the idea behind the guilt is, why shouldn't you slack off? What is wrong with taking a break? Why is taking a break slacking off, right? And when you ask yourself these questions, even though they may, it may seem like there are, that there are obvious answers, forcing yourself to articulate your own ideas is really helpful. You'll get to know yourself a lot better and that information will help you challenge it differently and more effectively. The third thing is try replacing that idea that you shouldn't be slacking off with something that's more realistic and more helpful. So for instance, taking a break helps me relax and helps me get back to my work with more energy and more capacity. Taking a break is completely normal. Everyone does it and everyone should do it. So those are just a couple of examples of more realistic and more helpful, more effective ways in which you can think. The fourth point is the last, but the most important is often when you're feeling guilty, that guilt comes from being harsh, punitive, and very demanding to yourself. So if you could try and take on a tone that's a bit more self-compassionate with yourself, that will help. Because being demanding and being harsh, it can get you results in the short term. You can drive yourself in the short term, but eventually it will deplete you of your spirit. Mm. So being self-compassionate means giving yourself a little bit of understanding and some genuine care and comfort. Thank you, Sri. That's really empowering. You're welcome. The last question for Dr. Tim. Working from home has blurred the boundaries between work and rest. How can I go about striking a healthy balance between the two? A bit difficult to answer this question because for <laughs> most of us, for me, there's no working from home. <laughs> so we've been in the clinic all the time, but I have I uh, heard of this, someone, I read somewhere that there is work-life balance, but then there's also work-life integration. So have you heard of, have you heard of a saying that goes, if you enjoy your work, then you kind of never have to work a single day of your life. But that I think is quite idealistic. Okay. It's very idealistic. Not many people uh, have the, the blessing to know be doing something that they are very passionate about day in day out so i, I think if you have it'll be great but if you find a way to look at your work and you appreciate it and you like love it so much 
uh, then maybe there's no need to strike a balance because you function very well with everything integrated together. But then if you need to strike a balance, uh, because sometimes you need to have boundaries because uh, very often there are also other people, other organizations, stakeholders involved, and these physical boundaries are blurred because of working from home, then you have to create those, you have to create those boundaries uh, uh, yourself. So for example, I think that Sri mentioned not having, not giving out your telephone number to, to just anybody. Having your own timetable, because that's essentially what happens when you're at work, right? So you got to be at work at this time, and then you got to do lunch at this time, and then you got to get out lunch at that time. During lunch, well, it's physically impossible to have appointments because you're at lunch. You have, I think most people who work from home right now heavily use a calendar, but just make sure you stick to that calendar and can, you can, the boundaries is your calendar actually. You just need to make sure you stick yeah. to it. Right. And make sure everybody sticks to it because it's also good for them. So I think using using technology, right, the calendar, and also creating that creating that that gateway before people can access you is quite uh, important. And sometimes because I, I feel that with communicating through text or communicating through emails, it can be very draining. Sometimes it's better to just give the person a call, a video chat, so you can see their face and just sort it all out and it's, it's okay to do that. I think probably uh, mostly in Asian societies, uh, people like to, to do that, but it's, if you just call the person, video call the person, you can get yeah. uh, issues resolved quite, quite quickly. And yeah. you get the satisfaction of, okay, this has been, you know, enough kind of effort has been put into this to, to resolve the issue. And then when the call is off, then it's off. So there you go, the boundaries right there. There's no open you know, messages that you have to maybe look into the history and address those questions. No, everything is just settled with a call. So mm. uh, that's for me, that's how, uh, how I like to do it. Other than that, I think just make sure that you remember you have, if you have kids at home and pets at home, <laughs> make sure that acknowledge your existence. <laughs> acknowledge your existence. <laughs> yeah. Very practical. Thank you. So if you were to sum up what we talked about today in five words to form a sentence, what would it be? Let's start with Emery. I have two. So the first would be self-care, don't self-combust. And the second would be turn off your email notifications. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to read it. Yeah, because that was what I did two weeks ago and I think it really helped me. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's nice. Inbox zero is a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dr. Tim, how about you? It's okay to set boundaries. Yeah. And three? Can I say three or four words? I don't have five words. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say you've got this. Nice. Love that. Mm. Thank you, Shri, Emery, and Dr. Tim for your time today. Personally, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It didn't Same feel here. like a podcast recording. It, it was a very <laughs> genuine, authentic, very empowering for me. So thank you guys yeah, for your time. If you made it here, we will be giving away three premium Core Collective yoga mats. To win this prize, all you need to do is to follow us on Instagram at SG, like and drop us a message in the post scheduled on the 27th of September, telling us one thing you enjoyed about this episode and tagging a friend who you think would love to listen to core conversations.
Thanks for tuning in to Core Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and spread the word with your family and friends. Don't forget that you can also share your feedback with us or get extra doses of fitness and wellness content from top professionals via our Facebook or Instagram at Core Collective SG. See you in the next episode.